0: Thanks very much. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And we pray that only the truth of your word will be spoken from this pulpit and, and heard. And we pray that as the, your word goes out, it will accomplish its mission before returning to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I know there's a whole uh, difficult issue of holy war in this, um, uh, in this chapter. I had a whole thing. But I think for the sake of time, I'm not going to talk about that. So if you have problems with that, do come up to me afterwards. I'm going to start with the first point, really, uh, with the dangers of living in the, um, in the land of Canaan. When I was uh, 12, I moved to the U.S., and I assimilated into the culture uh, nicely in a very uh, gradual way. Of course, there were a couple of things that I did. I made conscious choice to uh, be American. I quickly figured out that actually waving your hand like this and then bowing at the same time didn't go together. And so I said, OK, I'll do either, waving hands or bowing. Another thing that I did was when I first moved to the US, um, I was picked on quite a bit because I wore my uh, trousers fairly high, I and mean, we came sort of up here. And I was picked on uh, many times. And I saw that my peers had the trousers very low. Even though it felt really uncomfortable, I started to- making the choice to wear my trousers really low but for the most part i became you know american in a very slow subtle imperceptible ways um it was because um i was around americans i saw the world um as americans do i t- i started talking to my parents as americans do and you all know the influ- uh, importance of surrounding yourself with the right people because they influence you they influence how you are and what you think and I hope that it makes sense somewhat that it won't, this, this won't make the whole sense out of this. But I hope it makes sense then why, um, why, why God had commanded the Israelites to drive out all Canaanites from the promised land. God not, not only told them to destroy the people, uh, but also break their altars smash their sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles, and burn their idols. And he gives the clear reason in Deuteronomy chapter 7. So, once again, uh, for the sake of time, there's a whole thing in Deuteronomy chapter 7 that I'm not going, going to go into. Go, uh, go home and read Deuteronomy chapter 7, 1 through 6. But he gives the reason why in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. He says, they were a people, the Israelites are a people holy to their God. Because God chose them to set them apart. They were set apart. So they were a a nation that was devoted to God and God alone. They were supposed to be a city on a hill without any foreign influence, especially influence of their gods. They were devoted completely uh, to, to Yahweh God alone. So the injunction isn't so much to destroy the people, but it's to destroy the influence of the foreign religions. Ultimately, this is what God is concerned about as God gives his judgment in chapter 2 of our passage, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He points out in in verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, You shall not make a covenant with the people of of the land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. God is most concerned about wiping out the idols of Canaan. Having them would be devastating. It would be a devastating influence to them. And as we see later part in the book of Judges, the whole book of Judges is about that, how Israel becomes more like Canaan, not the other way around. The plan was that Israel was to be the city of God and the Gentiles to be included in as as part of God's people. But what happens in the book of Judges is that the Israelites become like uh, Canaanites. In fact, one scholar calls this book canonization of Israel because Israel becomes um, like like Canaanites. And unfortunately, we see this even happening in chapter 1. And once again, we didn't have time to read the whole chapter, but to go home and read it. Um, you see how Israelites become, lose faith in God right away in, cha- in verse 1, verses 1 to 3. In verse 1 um, of chapter 1, we read, uh, we see how Israelites are asking themselves, who will now go? Who will lead us? Who will go first? Now that Moses and Joshua have passed away. And in verse 2, Yahweh God clearly answers. He says, Judah shall go. I have given the land in their hands. But Judah, in verse 3, doesn't go alone. Judah turns to Simeon, to Simeonites, and, and, and says, can you come with me? And they go together. Now, it made human sense. Judah and Simeon are blood brothers so their tribe, uh, they had both the same father, Jacob, but also the same mother. Jacob had many uh, m- mothers. Um, they were full-blood brothers. And also the land that was promised to Judah was right next to the land that was promised to Simeonites. So it made human sense. But each tribe was supposed to go and conquer their own land, trusting not in numbers of the people that go with them, but in God alone. And if you're not convinced that there was a sense of distrust in this beginning verses, read the rest of the chapter. It actually is a little bit of a microcosm. It, 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 it foreshadows what happens in the rest of the book. It goes from high point to low point. At the end, um, they, we, we see their complete failure. So it starts with the high point, uh, with the verses 4 to 8. If you read that, uh, that part of the passage, um, the, the Judah, uh, J- Judah uh, goes and conquers Canaanites and Perizzites completely. And Simeonites, in seven, uh, verse 17, totally destroy the city as they were supposed to do. But then, look at verse 19 in our passage. We're told that the Lord was with men of Judah. We're told that. But then we're told this puzzling, puzzling line they were unable to drive out the people because they had chariots fitted with irons. If you're asking, why is this a problem? Why is this a problem? When the Lord is with them, you're asking the right question. It should not have been a problem. But they cannot conquer the land because they are scared of the people who uh, who are equipped with chariots of iron. And the Benjamites... um, fail as well. They failed to drive out uh, the Jebusites, which is uh, in, in, in modern day Jerusalem. Uh, they failed to drive out the Jebusites uh, from Jerusalem in verses, uh, verse 21 and verse 29 and 30. It tells us, the Bible tells us the Canaanites continued to live among them. So because they failed to drive them out, Canaanites lived among the Israelites. And you see the failure there. But actually, it grows even worse. And it's a very subtle change in the Bible. But the Bible is very well written. I mean, it's inspired by God. It's very well written. In verse 32, Before, it was the Canaanites who lived amongst the Israelites. But in verse 32, the writer records that the Asherites, which is a a whole family, the tribe of Asher, the, the Israelites, the Asherites lived among the Canaanite inhabitants. You see how the subject have changed. It's no longer uh, the Canaanites living with the Israelites. It's the Israelites living, with, living amongst the Canaanites. Naphtali, uh, Naphtalites, um, too, lived among the Canaanites. You see the assimilation happening, the the, the Canaanite culture creeping into Israel, even in this chapter. And now it grows even worse by end of the chapter with the Danites. Danites complete, uh, fail just completely. Verse 34 tells that the Amorites, which are uh, Gentiles, confined Danites. They confined Danites into a hill country, they weren't allowed to come in to that land that was promised to Danites because Amorites set the boundaries. And by end of chapter 1, in verse 36, we're told that they lived in the boundary set not by God, but by Amorites. The Gentiles set the terms for the Israelites. They've completely failed by end of this chapter. This is pretty much what happens in the rest of the book of Judges. Because they fail to get rid of the Canaanites. They become like the Canaanites. They live in the the terms of the Canaanites. And as we see, the the whole process is very subtle. It happens slowly. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, actually, if you were in North Korea, the dangers of living in North Korea is great but in some ways, it might be easier, in some ways. Because there is a very clear boundary between what is Christian and what is not. And you have to be very intentional about being a Christian in North Korea. But living in Hong Kong is dangerous because we, the, the, the idols of Hong Kong, the, cultures of, the unhealthy cultures of Hong Kong, slowly creep in and become part of us we slowly assimilate into the culture, and we live no differently than the rest, and we end up living in the terms of the Gentiles, and the terms who are not saved, who, are, who don't yet know Jesus. Because we easily compromise and settle and want to be comfortable in this world. Now I want to ask then, in what ways has the idols of Hong Kong been become a part of our lives? For example, I just think uh, Hong Kongers, I know, are obsessed about finding a house, buying an apartment. And I just want to ask, well, is that biblical? Is that biblical to really want to buy a permanent place that's, for my, that's mine? Is that biblical? Is the ever-present pursuit of a good job or status, pers- uh, the promotion? It seems to me that Hong Kong is also a, a place of great uh, wealth and status display. In what ways do we do this? In what ways has that become so important to us? And how about the nationalism? We talk about the mainland Chinese a lot. Um, we pit the mainland Chinese against the Hong Kong identity. Has nationalism become a part of our identity? And would God be pleased with that? God's judgment of Israel... Israel's action in the time of Judges is also very interesting. In chapter cha- chapter 2, verse 3, this is what God says. This is what he reminds them, he, says, he said before. I will not drive them up before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become a snare to you. God's judgment is that he's going to just let them be. He's not going to do anything. He's just going to let them live with the idols of Canaanites, He's just going to let the Canaanites whom they wanted to live with be part of their life. And that, in and of itself, will be a judgment to them, he says. And I think, if we really think about it, the fact that we live with the idols of Hong Kong actually is, is, is a, is a sense of, is a judgment in and of itself. Because if we make status, wealth, nationalism, apartment, um, part of our idols, they quickly become the reason why we uh, creep into workaholism, working so hard, uh, why we cheat, and why we backstab, and why we cut corners and flatter our superiors, why we prioritize appearance over substance. All that become part of our lives and makes our life miserable. As we live for these idols, these idols don't treat us well they become a part of God's judgment. Living amongst idols is dangerous. It's dangerous. What are the idols of Hong Kong? But it's also hard to live distinctly, isn't it, as Christians? It is hard. When I talk to people um, about their work or their life, they go, the first thing that they say is, but we live in this real world. Real world is hard. How can we live as Christians in this world? How, I mean, youth group. I mean, how can I send my kids to the youth group and, and have them succeed in school? Getting into good university is difficult. We make excuses. And Israelites had plenty of excuses in this passage as well. Remember what they said in chapter 1. Once again, um, they said they couldn't drive out the Canaanites because they had superior technology. This is verse 19. If you go, they say they had iron chariots in verse 19. In verses 27 and 35, we're told that the men of Manasseh and Dan could not succeed because Canaanites were determined to live there. They were determined to live there. They had strong willpower. They were more brave. In verse 28 to 33, we're told that the Israelites enslaved the Canaanites. Rather than driving them away or killing them, they they said, well, why kill them when I could use them for my economic advantage? It was more economically convenient for them, so they make these excuses. They seem like legitimate reasons on the surface, but God does not accept them as legitimate excuses. They're saying they can't, but God says, no, no, no. The problem is you won't. You just won't do it. So he reminds them in the beginning of chapter 2 of who he is and what he has done. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land. He reminds them of Exodus. He reminds them of the plague. He reminds them of the splitting of the Red Sea and the River Jordan. He reminds them of the walls of Jericho falling down. He reminds them of the pillar of cloud and, and, and fire that guided them and the manna that fed them. He says, I am God and I am with you. And he says, I am a faithful God. He says, I will never break my covenant with you. And he's incredulous isn't he in verse two and three? Yet, yet you have disobeyed me," he says. Like water that finds always always finds the lowest point, we are inclined to be morally and spiritually lazy. We're inclined to say, "This is too difficult. I can't do this." Rather than what is doing right and difficult, we uh, find morally compromising things, uh, but easier. We say we can't, but we simply won't. And there might be several ways where we do this. Um, Jesus demands forgiveness. we might be saying, you might be saying to yourself in your life, "I can't forgive that person." That's too difficult. I can't forgive that. I could forgive anything else but that." What we really mean is that we're unwilling for the story of the gospel to soften our hearts. And move us to um, to to give up our right to anger and be like Jesus in our relationship with this other person. It might be in the area of truth-telling. God asks of of us to tell us to speak the truth in love. It might be that we're not sharing the gospel because we think oh, we can't. Too much is at stake. It might be actually that we might not be able to tell the truth about ourselves to ourselves or to other people when they're compromising the truth. We say to ourselves, we're unable. How about the temptations in your life? That's another way that we do this. Says, I know this is sinful, but I can't resist this temptation. It's true that sin is powerful, it's addictive. And we can't do it by the sheer will of our power. I mean, sheer willpower. But we can get help. We can admit problems. We can ask God. We can ask other people to keep us accountable. It's not surprising that the Bible, when it talks about warfare in this way, that it uses martial language. It uses language of war to describe what we have to do. Remember in our Ephesians series, what God says through Paul in Ephesians 6, 10 through verse 12, Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor. Of God, so you can take your stand against the devil's scheme, mighty po- uh, schemes, for our struggle is not against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our, sp- uh, our, our struggle is against the spiritual realm, but this is a war, and we have to suit up every day. This is a war, and it is a real war. In what areas are we saying we can't, when actually we just won't? Of course, the only way we're going to be able to fight this uh, battle against assimilation, self-deception, is if we remember, if we remember who God is and what God has done for us. We're a people who have been saved, set apart as God's people, redeemed, as people who are drawn into a greater story that's outside of ourselves. And so in the beginning of chapter 2, when God finally speaks, after all these events, he reminds them of who he is and what he has done. Remember, God was the only God. Um, uh, Remembering God... And who he is and what he has done is the only way we, they could have accomplished their mission. Because you don't ordinarily, when you fight a battle, you size the, you size the other side out. You, you, you look at it and you go, okay, there, there are too many people there. Or they're, they're, they're equipped uh, with superior, um, uh, superior technology. They're equipped uh, with, they, they have greater will to fight. And then you go, actually, I can't win this battle. And so you walk away. The only way they could have fought that battle was if they remembered that God was on their side. If they had remembered what God just did for them. And so God reminds them. And we can live our lives. We can work for God in our workplaces. In this, in this world... Um, As outnumbered people, um, outsourced people, sometimes outsmarted people, we can only live as Christians in this world if we remember who God is and what God has done for us. And this is why I think as much as God will be at your workplaces, Sundays are important. Sundays are important because this is a time when we come together to remember the salvation that God has given us. And it's a greater salvation than the salvation that the Israelites received in Exodus. In Christ, God has delivered all who trust Him, not just, uh, uh, not just uh, 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 out of a people, but out of slavery of sin, guilt, and wrath of God into a living relationship with him. And then he reminds us that God is powerful by raising Jesus Christ from the dead, the thing that should be an end to all men. God says, this will not be your end because I have the power to raise you up. And God raises Jesus up and reminds us that God will raise each one of us up with him. There are North Koreans who escaped in China around the border become christians and they go back to north korea because they want to share the gospel to people of north korea you know how they do that they're reminded of what god has done for them they remember god's salvation for them that's the only way they can do that when andrew and others share their story to non-christians they don't understand They don't understand why they would risk uh, their lives in in such a way to share the gospel. The only way it makes sense to him and to all of us is if we remember what God has done in Jesus Christ for us and how he is mighty, how he loves us, and how He the, 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 the salvation that he's given us is worth dying for. If we remember the grace, it's only... If we remember God's salvation, we will not lose our saltiness in our workplaces. We will not lose our saltiness as we live in Hong Kong. And secondly, the gospel story will help us not, in, uh, help us not to fall into the temptation of self-deception, deceiving ourselves and telling ourselves we can't. In a way, we deceive ourselves because we want to find the comfortable life. We want to say, ah, this is too hard, and maybe this is actually not God's will. Uh, Maybe this is just how we have to be in this world. Um... In a way, the gospel, st- I mean, the, the, the reason why we deceive ourselves is because we want to be comfortable. And in a way, the gospel story gives us the most comfortable story of us all. The, the cross tells us that we are loved beyond our imagination, doesn't it? It tells us that we are forgiven. It tells us that death that seems to be ev- inevitable to everybody is not the end for all of us. That It tells us, the, the, the story of the cross tells us that even the most seemingly terrible evil in this world, will, God will use that and turn into good, as he had done on the cross. It's the most comfortable thing to hear for all of us. At the same time, at the same time, the gospel story is an antidote for self-deception because it makes us uncomfortable at the same time. When we remember the cross, we can't say we, keep, we, we can't keep on saying I can't, because the cross leaves us uh, uncom- uh, 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 us to be uh, not comfortable. The story of Jesus Christ is the story of God who emptied Himself, gave everything up, stripped of all privileges of being God, and who became man. That's a story that should make us uncomfortable if we want to settle in our privileges. It's a story of God who had no patience for status anxiety. He didn't choose to mingle with the powers of this world. He mingled with the shady characters like the tax collectors and the prostitutes and sinners of all kinds. It's a story of complete forgiveness as well. It's a story that says, Father, forgive them. Um, because, uh, for they do not know what they're doing, even as people are crucifying him on the cross. It's a story that says, we have no excuse but to forgive others. It's a story of complete truth telling through Jesus' earthly ministry. He told the power, truth to the power, but it also, he also tells us the truth about ourselves. We are uh, sinners in abjectly, abject sinners in need um, of grace before God. It also has uh, a story of sinlessness in the face of all sorts of temptations. It's a story that should make us uncomfortable. If we're tempted to deceive ourselves, it's a story that moves us out of self-deception into constant self-examination, even all the while assuring us that we are loved and forgiven and accepted at one point in college, I decided that I wasn't going to completely assimilate to the American culture because at one point I, th- I said, oh, you know, I value my Korean identity. So um, I, saw, I put some markers around me. So um, I used to go by Daniel in high school. So people call me Daniel. My high school friends call me Daniel still. Um, but I, I, I made a conscious choice in, in college to say, I'm going to go by Hiyu. People are going to call me Hiyu. I'm going to force people to pronounce my difficult name and recognize um, my Koreanness. Um, and I started to seek out Koreans and practice my Koreans, embrace my Korean identity as well as uh, embracing my American identity. To fight against this danger of assimilation and self deception, we have to put markers in our lives. We have to find ways to remember God's salvation for all of us. And it's only when we remember we'll continue being the salt and light in this world. We'll continue to live our lives radically, as Andrew have done, has done, as people all over the world have done, as many of you are doing right now, only if we remember God's salvation. Um, it is very late. <laughs> um, let's sing. You are faithful before the, um, I'll, I'll pray for us and close us.